Well, before me, and uh, I guess in front of you somehow uh, today, this morning, are students who um, have either completed or are very close to completing all they need to complete in order to graduate from high school and college, and that's a pretty cool accomplishment. It's always fun to address them in the service, but it's also always a challenge because I, I need to speak to high school and college graduates, but I also want to speak to you um, as our church body, and so that's my aim this morning. Graduation Recognition Sunday, or Graduate Recognition Sunday, is always one of those mile markers in the life of our church. Um, many of these graduates that sit before you this morning, um, you have poured into their lives, whether it be through teaching them um, in Sunday school or choir or praying for them. Some of you, I'm sure, praying for them by name, having never met them. Um, speaks to the faithfulness of this church. Each graduate recognition service is a day to celebrate. It's a day to look, to look ahead. Obviously, it's a day that we look back. But this morning, I want to spend a few minutes in a text that uh, might not always be used at a graduate recognition service. And so that's the direction we're going in this morning. If you have your Bibles, open them up to Psalm 115. I'm going to speak to all of Psalm 115, but before we get to the end, we're going to just go verses 1 through 8. Um, let me read that to you, and you can read along. Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory, because of your loving kindness, because of your truth. Why should the nations say, where now is their God? But our God is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of man's hands. They have mouths, but they cannot speak. They have eyes, but they cannot see. They have ears, but they cannot hear. They have noses, and they cannot smell. Have hands, but they can't feel. And feet, but they cannot walk. They cannot make a sound with their throat. Those who make them will become like them. Everyone who trusts in them. And so we'll pause there just for a few minutes and give you some background or some context as to what's happening here in this psalm. Psalm 115 is a hymn, and in it, it's, it, there's a reminder for God's people to trust and to worship Him alone. And if there's one thing that we could say to high school and college graduates as they move on to their next step, it's this, trust and worship God alone, but there's more in the text. The psalmist reminds the, his readers, his listeners, that God is the only thing worthy of their attention. And while there's always temptation to find worth in senseless idols, verses 4 through 8, the psalmist points to the steadfast love and to the faithfulness of the one true God. And so we see immediately in our text this morning a stark contrast between man and God. It's an interesting place to start. It's interesting to note. We look at verse 1. It says this, Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory, because of your loving kindness and because of your truth or your faithfulness. I think that's a great way to begin a message this morning with maybe just a gentle reminder that we are absolutely nothing and He is everything. And we can see in the text that this is not a struggle that's just recent for us, but seemingly it's been a struggle as long as humans have been in existence. The psalmist has to pause and say, 
that I need to figure out where I am to ascribe my praise. I need to be reminded where I am to ascribe my praise. Who is worthy of my worship and my adoration? Idols are addressed in a few verses, but we start with verse 1, again with God and man. And here is the reminder that we have to stop looking in the mirror and start looking above. It's no secret that we live in a society today that is pretty self-promoting. I've mentioned that several times and try to talk to our students about that all the time. That there has to become a moment where we stop looking in the mirror and admiring what we see and continue to look above and admire what we see. See, pride, I think, is a terrible thing, isn't it? And I'm sure that none of you in this room have ever struggled with a prideful thought or a prideful action, but, but just in case you have, or you're among me that, that has, being brought down to earth can be a very humbling and sometimes painful experience. I was reminded of this a couple of weeks ago, and I'm, I'm trusting that this stays between us, right? Uh, I went to the doctor's office. Um, for my yearly um, physical, my yearly checkup. It was, it's been 17 years, and so I thought it'd be time for me to, to go in. <laughs> and so I was a little nervous. I had, to, I had to fast before. I knew I had, I had to have some blood work done. I don't like needles. We'll get to that in a minute. And um, I walked in. I sat down on the, the examination table, and this nurse walked in as a young girl, and um, she had a tray in her hand. And, and I know what trays mean, and I didn't think it was time for that tray and so uh, nervously, just kind of asking her some questions, I said, am I getting a shot today? And she said, yes, you are. All right, that's good. Um, what kind of shot am I getting? You know, I like to know these things. And uh, it was a tetanus shot, evidently. It's been 20 years since I had a tetanus shot or something like that. Um, it's fine. It's fine. Um, and so she, I said, is it going to hurt? And she said, yeah, it's going to hurt. It's got to go to the muscle. And I said, okay. And um, so she said, roll your sleeve up. So I rolled my sleeve up, and she said, oh, I can use... A smaller needle. And uh, I said, <laughs> not exactly sure what that means. And, um, and so there's, there's shot number one to the old pride, right? And um, I said, yeah, you know, it's just, I don't work out a lot. I know it's hard to tell. But, um, and she said, no, it's just, and so anyway, she sticks me. And it, and it hurt. It hurt for 10 days later. I mean, it was just knotted up and um, so so that was done and, and I'm fine really I can I can handle a shot but I knew the, the blood work was coming so I, I leave and I go to the lab and I'm sitting in the in the waiting room of, of the lab and I don't think it's fair how they do this because they put you in the waiting room and you can see where the the action is happening okay and so a nurse comes and assures me she'll be with me in a minute and I told her don't worry about it you know take your time I've got nothing to do um, today I'm just really hungry um, and so um, she comes and she, she puts me in a chair and there's a lady next to me. So there is, again, it's just two by two. We're lining up to give blood. And, um, and the lady's talking about what she's going to have for breakfast um, and what she's been doing that day, what she's going to continue to do the rest of the day. And so it's a good distraction for me. The nurse walks up and she says, which arm? And so I throw my arms up over the restraint bar. That's what I call it, that they put in there. <laughs> and, uh, and I said, whichever one isn't going to hurt. To which she replied, I can't help you with that. 
I gave her a high five and said, thanks for helping. And, um, and she said, I'll use your left arm. She uses my left arm. She sticks the needle in. I'm getting nauseous just thinking about it, right? She sticks the needle in. I feel it. I don't see it because if I don't look at it, it's not there, right? It's over. It's over. My fear was we're going to have another vial. It was just one. Um, and so as she takes it off and she puts a bandage on me, another nurse looks at me and she says, baby, are you okay? <laughs> And in a moment of clarity and just raw truth, I said, no, ma'am, I'm not. She said, I didn't think so. And that's the last thing I remember, right? <laughs> we need to get you to the floor is the last thing I remember. And so uh, I come to, I come to after two sticks of ammonia, right, um, which I'm kind of proud of. And, um, and, I, and I come to, and, um, and, and I look up. And the once empty waiting room was all of Lexington County was there. (laughs) I'm drenched in sweat. My clothes are sticking to me. I feel how white I am. I mean, I just feel it. All eyes are on me. A big male nurse comes in, and he picks me up and puts me in a wheelchair (laughs) and wheels me through on parade for all of the doctor's office to see. It was a humbling experience. I'd appreciate it if you wouldn't tell anybody, but I say all that <laughs> to say this, that my body, myself, was only able to take me so far. It's a humbling experience that tells us this, when we have reached the end of ourself and we cannot depend on our own abilities to take us any further. And any of us who have experienced that, whether it be through passing out of the doctor's office or the diagnosis of cancer or failing a test or whatever it may be, when all of a sudden all the focus is no longer on me but on all, everything else around me and certainly on him, I think that's where God likes it. And so the psalmist starts out and he says, not to us. Not to us. Let me be reminded that it's not about me. Take away my pride. Lord, humble me because of who you are and because of what you're doing. Pride is an interesting thing. It has a way of dictating our actions. Pride flies in the face of humility. And it changes our tune from not to us to look at me. But if the psalmist is indeed correct, and if all of our worship and all of our um, uh, 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 praise is to go to God, and we see if it's all to God, then we have to understand there's nothing left for anything or anyone else. And that includes self. Matthew Henry says, Let no opinion of your own merits have any room, either in our prayers or in our praises, but let both center in God's glory. And so this morning we have to ask ourselves this question, graduates and church alike, if I know that I have to take the focus off of me and put it on to God, then I have to ask myself the question, who or what is my God? There's a new version of an old resource that my family is walking through, and one of the questions is, what is God? The children's answer is, uh, is God is the creator of everyone and everything. 
The adult version is, God is the creator and sustainer of everyone and everything. He is eternal, infinite, and unchangeable in his power and perfection, goodness and glory, wisdom and justice and truth. Nothing happens except through him and by his will. That is the God that we serve. Another commentator answers the question like this, the question of what is God? Your God is the master passion of your life. And he illustrates that with three points. He is the, or it is the driving force. It is what gets you up in the morning. It's what motivates you on a daily basis. Secondly, it's the ideals that control your actions. And third, it's the philosophy that governs your decisions. And so for us to say not to us, but to you, Lord, to you, God, we have to pause and say, what am I giving to? What is driving me? What is, what is fueling me? What is my life built around or even upon? And see, Christians should be people whose theology drives what they do and how they do it. And that's what we're getting at this morning. But instead, the last couple of weeks, I've really been wrestling with this truth. Instead, I fear that on most days, I am a Christian driven by my ideology rather than driven by my theology. And so I get on board with things like social justice. I get on board with things, uh, with missions, with charities, with Christian work. Because I feel like that's what I'm supposed to do. I feel like that's what is, is expected of me. Rather than doing it because my theology, my view of God tells me this is who I am and what I am should be doing. Your God is the master passion of your life. He is the driving force, the ideals that control your actions and the philosophy that governs your decisions. Our view of God should drive who we are. And when we understand that, when we understand who God is, we're able to say, not to me, God, but to you. And then we see what the psalmist talks about in verses 4 through 8, that there are a lot of other things vying for our attention. There's a question posed in verses 2 and 3, what should the nations say? Where now is their God? But our God is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. And see, the psalmist sets up his observations of these pagan idols or these false gods by answering a question that has been posed on numerous occasions, seemingly to him and to others. Where is your God? The answer the psalmist gives is clear and concise. My God, my uppercase G God, the one true God who, is, who has loving kindness and faithfulness and truth, my God is in the heavens. And my God does whatever he pleases. As a matter of fact, my God has kind of has this thing under control, right? He's orchestrating all things. But your God, your God, they are idols of silver and gold. They are the work of man's hands. They have mouths, but they cannot speak. They have eyes, but they cannot see. 
They have ears, but they cannot hear. They have noses, and they cannot smell. Hands, and they cannot feel. Feet, and they cannot walk. They cannot make a sound with their throat. Those who make them will become like them. Everyone who trusts in them. To put in the context, I wanted to look very quickly at three of of these heathen gods that were being worshipped. The first is Baal. According to Norman Geisler, in general, Baal was a fertility god who was believed to enable the earth to produce crops and people to produce children. And different regions worship Baal in different ways, and Baal proved to be a highly adaptable god. And we see in Judges 3.7, the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Look, they forgot the Lord their God and served the Baals and the Asherah. Baal worship was a powerful attraction and distraction to the people of Israel and eventually got them to captivity and exile. Then there was Moloch. He was another pagan god, the personified ruler of shameful sacrifice. When Abraham left Ur to go to Canaan, he was headed to a land whose god was Moloch. Child sacrifice was routine in the land, and we see in Leviticus 18.21, you shall not give any of your children to offer them to Moloch, and so profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. God continually warned the Israelites about Moloch, and the Israelites didn't heed God's warnings, and we see in the Old Testament instead, you know what they did? They incorporated parts of this pagan God worship into their own traditions. A people who were not driven by their theology, but rather their ideology or their sociology, and in turn became confused as to who or what God was. And then there was mammon, money, wealth, and material possessions. In biblical culture, the word mammon often carried a negative connotation. Sometimes it was used to describe all lusts and excesses, whether it be gluttony, greed, and dishonest worldly gain. Ultimately, mammon described an idol of materialism, which many trusted as a foundation for their world and for their philosophy. And so here are three big pagan gods that were worshipped. We see a contrast between the one true God and these three very specific gods. And we remember what Matthew Henry said. He says this concerning our text. The psalmist shows that their gods, though they are not shapeless things, they are senseless things. Though they are shapeless things, are not shapeless things, they are senseless things. And I think there's so much truth to that very old statement. So here's the thing we know about our idols. If our idols were shapeless, they would not be appeasing. Because it is their shape or their perceived value. It's their intrigue that that really drives us and lures us into chasing after them rather than chasing after the heart of God. Remember Matthew 6.24, no one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or who will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. 
You cannot serve the one true God and fill in the blank. You've got to choose where your loyalties are going to lie. And so I thought this week, what are some, what are some pagan gods today? I've not met anybody this week that worships Baal or Mammon. Well, Mammon, yeah. Or Moloch. I haven't run into anybody this week walking down Main Street. But I do know people who worship their career. I do know people who worship academics. People who worship their homes, the way they look. I mean, you fill in the blank. Thing after thing after thing after thing. And yet we get really indignant, indignant, right? And we think, well, wait a minute. That's crazy to worship this, this rock, this carven image that has eyes but cannot see, ears that cannot hear, a mouth but cannot speak. And then we, got, we, we, we pause and we think, wait a minute. Where has my attention been this week? Is it on academics? Is it on careers? Is it on possessions? Is it on my children? Is it on my home? Is it on my car? On my boat? On my phone? Is it on athletics? You name it. Our culture and our subculture, that is the Christian culture, has made a false god of it, probably. These things in and of themselves aren't bad things, necessarily. But it's where our attention goes. The psalmist reminds us, not to us, but to you. Thirdly, as we finish up, we are called to do our job. So we understand that there is God. We understand what God is, who He is, what He's doing, what He's about. We understand that there are distraction after distraction after distraction that are vying for our attention. We have to properly ascribe our praise to the one true God. And so we do that. The psalmist says in verse 18, But as for us, we will bless the Lord from this time forth and forever. Praise the Lord. In essence, what the psalmist is asking us to do or telling us to do is worship well. Worship well. I did some digging this week and found some some results of genuine worship. The first is this, that our delight is found in God. We know that God has created us to glorify Him and to enjoy Him. We see that in what David said in Psalm 27, 4. One thing I have asked from the Lord that I shall seek. The one thing that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. To behold the beauty of the Lord and to meditate in His temple. The one thing that I ask that I would dwell in the house of the Lord forever. That I would find my delight in Him. Some of you have shared a room with someone that you don't like. It's not a pleasant experience. But it's, it's, it's a different experience altogether if you share a room or a home with someone that you enjoy, that you delight in. And when we worship the Lord, when we worship the Lord, when we do our job, we delight in His presence. Instead of running from Him, we will cling to Him. And our delight is found in Him, not in senseless, shapeless things. So we delight in God, and then God delights in us. And you say, wait a minute, me? God delights in me? Yes, God delights in His children. Isaiah 62 reminds us that we are a crown of beauty in the hand of the Lord. God delights in us 
as the bridegroom delights over the bride, so shall God rejoice and delight over us. And that hits home for me as a husband. I'll never forget the day that I stood at the, at the foot of an altar and waited for my wife to come through these double doors in this white gown and thinking, oh my goodness, this is crazy. Stepping up on the steps so I get a better view of what's about to happen, right? What a picture of how God delights in his children to get a better view, to step up. And to rejoice and delight over us. So we delight in him. He delights in us. We draw near to God. You see where this is going. We have the ability to come straight to the heart of God. We don't have to go through people. We don't have to go through rituals. There's nothing that we have to do. We come to him just as we are. New covenant worship allows us to enter into the presence of almighty God. Just as Hebrews 10.19 says, we have the confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus. We draw near to God. God draws near to us, James 4, 8. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. What a promise that in the midst of good times and bad times, in the midst of, of promising times and in the midst of seemingly hopeless times, in times of grief, anger, and frustration, as we draw near to God, as we lean into God, He is drawing near to us. There's this mutual drawing that takes place. And then in all that, we know that a result of genuine worship is that God ministers to us. Wayne Grudem says this, When we worship God, He meets with us and directly ministers to us. Doing what? Strengthening our faith, intensifying our awareness of his presence and granting refreshment to our spirits. So we're able to worship by experiencing the present and remembering the past. We see that in verses 9, 10, 11 with the Israelites, with the priests, and with those who fear the Lord. That they're able to trust God and lean in to God. Because he is our help and he is our shield. We see the promise that God blesses those who fear him. I found a quote this week that wherever there is an awful fear of God, there may be a cheerful faith in him that those that reverence his word may rely fully on it. So let me close with this, just recapping very, very quickly. That we worship God as students and as the church, we worship God because His loving kindness and His truth and His faithfulness has been evident. It's been declared in Scripture. It's also been proven by grace. We understand that His reputation is at stake. What then should the nation say, where is God? Or our God is in the heavens. May it never be said of Philip Turner, who is his God? We should guard against idols because we see that it was the downfall of the Israelites. We see New Testament warnings as well. You might want to write down Acts 17, 28 through 29. In other words, that we are not to waste time on useless, lifeless things, but rather to fully pursue the heart of God and in doing so, bless God. Paul David Tripp says this, Today the true love of your heart will be revealed by what you grieve, and by what you celebrate. Graduates, church, may we celebrate and worship well the one true God.
God, we thank you so much for your word. And we thank you, God, for the ability to apply it. So God, give us now wisdom. Give us boldness and courage to apply the things that we've heard and read this morning. Not for our glory, God, but for yours. It's in the mighty name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. Let me invite you to stand, and as you stand, the choir sings. If you are not in a personal growing relationship with Jesus Christ, I'd love to talk to you about that. If you're looking for a church home, our doors are open. The choir will sing and you respond. seated. Well, it is always fun to allow our 